0: Okay. Can I be honest here? Yes. I used to rely on alcohol for a lot of things, including managing my PMS symptoms like anxiety, irritability, feeling blue, ugh, huge mistake. However, as a sober girl today, that is obviously not an option, but have no fear. Ladies, we found a solution to our PMS woes, alcohol so not needed. Enter Jubilance, your daily support and new BFF when it comes to true and effective PMS relief. It's so simple. Just take one capsule a day and keep your symptoms at bay. If you're interested in trying it, you can use the code sober girls for $10 off your first order.
1: I've noticed I have more energy focus, less cravings, and my mood feels so much more balanced. Jubilance is a non-hormonal available over the counter and powered by two ingredient formula used by thousands of women worldwide to live PMS mood symptom free. Think less anxiety, less irritability, more peace, power, and dare I say, fun all month long. Try Jubilance for $10 off by visiting jubilance.com forward slash sober girls, or use the promo code sobergirls at checkout. That's dot com slash sobergirls for $10 off. Plus, get a free two-day shipping on orders of $40 or more. Again, go to brewing.com slash sobergirls or use our code sobergirls for 15% off.
0: Hi guys, welcome to Choose Sober Girls. I am your host, Erin, along with my co-host, Michaela, and we have back on our show. We are so excited. Our um, guest MD, our in-house MD, Dr. Erin. This is her third time joining us and we are thrilled. Just a reminder for anybody who this is your first time um, getting to hear Dr. Erin. Dr. Erin is a hospitalist in New York City. She is currently working at Mount Sinai. She has worked as a doctor, as an internist for 25 years She treats and sees several alcoholics daily. She is happily married and a mama of twin teen boys, and very busy. So, Erin, thank you for taking the time today to join us. My pleasure. For just a little
1: light topic today, right, Michaela? I mean, I'm so excited for this one. I think people, everybody, like the world needs to hear this this topic and understand this disease deeper.
0: Yes. For yeah. someone who is in recovery for alcoholism, this is really, it's home for me. Um, we're going to talk about the neurobiology of substance use, misuse, and addiction, and hopefully help to shift the perception of the addict, of the person suffering. I know personally, when I was in the throes of my addiction, I we were talking offline, I feel like the biggest loser the biggest loser. I was like, why can't I just stop? I could truly do anything. I used to joke, like throw me in the army. I could like, I could follow and I could do it. And people used to come and tell me, why can't you just stop drinking? Just don't drink tonight. Just And I knew in my soul, I would not have like, oh, okay. There's no way I can't stop. And I don't understand why. And this is why we're so honored to have Dr. Aaron to help us like break down what's going on why is it so impossible? Not impossible, because I'm here today sober. So difficult for people to get sober, to remain sober. Um, Let's just take it from there and we'll just
2: dive in. Sure. Okay, so today, yeah, we're gonna talk about the neurobiology of addiction and touch on psychology. And I think, guys, it's important for anyone, um, this goes for all addictions. So it goes for um, like any substance you could be using. Obviously, this podcast, it's primarily on alcohol, but of course, this involves cocaine, heroin, if it's just tobacco smoking or marijuana smoking. Um, These are substance addictions, right? And they're different to process addictions. Uh, You may have heard these terms. Just in case you read about them, I just want to touch. Process addictions relate to non-substance behaviors, which are also addictions, though. Gambling, spending money, uh, sexual activity, gaming, spending time on the internet, and eating. These are more behavioral problems, not substance, but this focus is on substance today. Because I'm not sure exactly who your listening audience is, but I believe it's primarily uh, substance addicts. Mm-hmm. So, yes, start with that. And, um, you know, we've all heard of the id, ego and superego Um We're going to touch on that, but I want to get into the neurobiological framework, and it's important to talk about that because so many people, men and women, all comers, I see them in the hospital all the time, and they lapse. People go into recovery, and they feel like they use words like, I failed. I was sober for three months, and then one week of getting out, I I relapsed. I failed. I'm a loser. You are not a loser. You are not a failure. You are in recovery. You are sick. And I'm here today to help you explain what's going on so you have the right words and the knowledge. And know that there's hope, this can be fixed, but there is no cure. So just like diabetes right now, there is no cure. Cancer, we never say cured, we say survivor. You're surviving this. It's a day-to-day, moment-to-moment decision that you have to make, but we're here to empower you, the three of us together, to help you make the right decisions. Knowledge is power and having it is a good tool to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. So today we're gonna to talk about the neurobiological framework underlying substance use and why some people transition from using it to misusing it to an actual substance abuse disorder, which in its severest form is addiction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why it's so hard to be. So um, as we all know, severe addictions were once viewed as a moral failing or a character flaw, but they're now understood to be a chronic illness in that it affects your physical health, social function, and voluntary control over substances. So people that tell you, oh, there's just something wrong with you. It's some kind of character thing. What's the matter with you? You're, you know, a sore person or you're a weak person. That's not true. There's, there's a whole, people that even say this isn't a disease, that's really not true. And I'm here to tell you that after you get board certified in internal medicine, there's another year or two or a lifetime spent in addiction psychiatry. It does fall under the auspices of psychiatry, but I'm an internal medicine doctor and I see plenty of this on the floor. I would say at least 30% of all my patients, maybe even 40% have a substance abuse problem. Wow. I'm in New York City, but there's so many, many. and whether they're in recovery or not in recovery, it's something which we're going to talk about today that will affect you lifelong. So, even if you've been sober for the last 30 years, you break your arm and you need opioids and you were an alcoholic, there is a flag there. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take them. It just means we have to know that information so that we can treat you accordingly.
0: Yeah. I hear that all the time in the rooms. People actually opt out of trying not to take them for that reason. Uh, Okay. Amazing.
2: So we know we just said that um, addiction, uh, it has many features that are common with other disorders, such like we said, diabetes, hypertension, asthma, all of these, all of those and addiction are chronic. They're subject to relapse. They are influenced by genetics and have a behavioral, social and environmental factor. Mm -hmm. So Research gives scientific evidence that addiction to drugs and alcohol is a chronic brain disease that has potential for recurrence, but thankfully it also has potential for recovery. Mm. Ah. So one of the main goals of the research is to understand that at most the basic level, the mechanisms through which the substance use alters the brain structure and function um, can drive a transition from occasional use—you have a glass of wine when you go out—to misuse. You're drinking now maybe three to four times a week. To addiction, you're drinking every day. To gee, I've been sober three months, three years, and now I've relapsed because I'm going through a divorce, because something traumatic yeah. happened, life, or you're just fed up and you relapse. But there's a physiological, biological component that explains this. Okay. People say, is it my fault? I don't like that word. Uh, you you know, people that have cancer do not go out and swallow cancer cells. You know, that's the difference. There is a component of actually us actively participating as human beings in that type of behavior. But there's also reasons in your brain and your biology that's causing you to do that. So you're at a disadvantage.
1: Right.
2: So, um. A growing body of substance use research uh, conducted with humans is complementing the work that has been done in animals. And I was explaining to Aaron just before this podcast and Michaela that the primary uh, majority of research was done in rats. That's not uncommon in science. But now humans are being incorporated into it because there are are brain imaging technologies such as MRIs and what we call PET scans, which are similar to an MRI. They take about the same amount of time. But now researchers can sort of see inside the living brain as it's functioning so they can investigate and characterize biochemical, functional, structural changes in the brain that result from alcohol and drug use. And you can see this because certain areas of the brain light up when certain stimuli are put in front of that person. And I'm going to explain this a little clearer in a moment. So to understand how addictive substances affect the brain, it's important to first understand the basic biology. And we've talked about this on the other podcast of brain function. So we have nerve cells in our brain. They're called neurons. And believe it or not, you have about 86 billion of them. Um, They communicate with one another through chemical messengers called neurotransmitters. And to make it very simple, it's like sending an email. It's like an email from one to the other, that, but it goes lightning quick, very, there's lots of them. There's a lot going on in your brain and it tells certain parts of the brain what to do. So the little area where it synapses, it's called a synapse, that little email, um, it goes to a receptor on another neuron. And some of these neurons are inhibitory they make it less likely that the receiving neuron will carry out the action. And some are excitatory, meaning that they stimulate the neuron to do that. So you can see some things like Parkinson's disease. That's why you see shaking in the hands. They're stimulating something to happen and they're inhibiting something to happen. Now, based on the biology of the person, the disease process, Parkinson's disease, um, stroke, uh, addiction, it depends how that will manifest in the person. It'll be clear in a few minutes, but it's not normal. And uh, we have, do have some control over that. So the three basic parts of the brain that are affected by substance use, okay? These are the three. The basal ganglia, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex, which is the front of your head. Okay. So let me just really touch on them. The basal ganglia are located sort of in the middle, deep, deep into the brain. It is an area of the brain that can be affected and it plays an important role in keeping body movements smooth and, sorry, and coordinated. So it's involved in learning routine behaviors and forming habits. This is important. Mm-hmm. As 2 subregions that are very important to substance use disorders. And the majority of research these days is going toward that. So it's something called, you don't have to be specific here. So we're just gonna say the basal ganglia, but just for people out there who know certain words, I just wanna clarify. Uh, Nucleus accumbens, which is involved in motivation and the experience of reward. And the dorsal striatum, which is involved in forming habits and other routine behaviors. So those are subdivisions of the basal ganglia. But they're very important in addiction, as you can imagine. Motivation and experience of reward and forming habits. Okay? This is a biological reason for addiction. Hmm.
1: So
2: um, you can get basically um, in the... Just below the amygdala is the basal ganglia. And in here, you have your stress behavioral responses like fight and flight. Mm-hmm. We've heard and yep. negative emotions, negative emotions like unease, anxiety, and irritability. Okay. So that's your basal ganglia. So we know the amygdala does reward and helps us form habits. We know the amygdala helps us do fight or flight. Now you have something at the front of your brain, which we know when kids get hit with like a bat or they're hit in the head with a ball, but this is the prefrontal cortex. This is an important part of the brain. It's just above your eyes and it's responsible for complex processes such as what we call executive function. Executive function is the ability to organize thoughts and activities, prioritize tasks, manage time, make decisions, and regulate your actions, emotions, and impulses. These three are the most important parts when it comes to addiction in your brain and they are greatly affected. Your basal ganglia, your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex, okay? Now, your addiction, when you become an addict, when your use goes to misuse and then your misuse goes to the extreme of addiction, there is a cycle, and I just—I was just telling Aaron and Michaela. Just finished reading this. This just came out of the NIH, that's the National Institute of Health. That's sort of the guru of this country and actually the world that oversees things. A lot of research has and money has been put into addiction recently, and they've just released this really wonderful book. Um, it's about 200 pages long. Goes over all the different aspects of addiction, and. You know, if you want me to come back, we can go chapter by chapter and go over it. But they just released uh, an addiction cycle, which is a repeating cycle with three stages. So this is how they are the gurus defining addiction. Okay. Number one is binge intoxication. So the stage at which an individual consumes an intoxicating substance and experiences its reward or pleasurable effects. That's one. Number two is the withdrawal negative affect the stage at which an individual experiences a negative emotional state in the absence of the substance. So whether it be cocaine, it's alcohol, it's heroin. Alcoholics, I'll speak to particularly because that's what I see the most. Alcoholics can get tremors. They can have diarrhea the next day. They can have nausea and vomiting. They can have massive headaches, all kinds of problems. I mean, it can be so extreme. They have seizures. They go into delirium tremens and they could die. It has a high mortality Um, heroin, that's why it has to be treated in the hospital. Heroin addicts, similar, they go into a massive withdrawal that makes them massively sick. And cocaine addicts tend to become very agitated. So do marijuana users. But even, um, I know I used to work in a smoking cessation clinic. So let's go with a um, substance like smoking, tobacco. The two number one flags on the chart for severity of addiction, what do you two think they were? For smoking.
0: Oh, I would say something with mood, like something very similar to an alcoholic who's like miserable and irritated.
2: Okay, well, the, the two biggest flags to tell us they would be very difficult to get to quit were one, that they smoked in bed before getting up. Oh God, so that's so dangerous. In this wow. What, in the 1980s, it was more common, but uh, still they smoke in bed. You know, it's like the people Not who smoke Smoke and roll up the windows.
1: But um well, but now people vape. So I feel like they do that everywhere.
2: Yeah. Vapers, this goes for them too. So if you're yeah. vaping before you get out of bed, you are high in high bed. Okay, I gotta hear the second one. Um the other one was when you were sick, you had a cold, pneumonia, and you smoked through it. Which so that's that's what you... alcoholics do, they drink when they're
0: sick. Okay, that's wow, that's amazing in bed. Even though I would
2: take one of addiction, but the, these were two, two of the more, you know, to, to take Uh, us in. So we have fringe intoxication, and then we have the withdrawal effect, which can drive people to use. And then you have something that's the preoccupation and anticipation, the stage at which one seeks substances again, after a period of abstinence. This is the person who thinks that they have alcoholism or addiction in the bag. I've got this. And then they go out and they relapse. So we're gonna talk about that, but um, one drives the other. It's a, it's a cycle, it's a circle. You go from binge intoxication to withdrawal negative effect, to preoccupation, anticipation, and then back to binge That's mm-hmm. why our hard, hardest thing to get out of is a, is a circle, a yes. cycle. So how does one get out of that cycle? That we're gonna talk about it, but mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, alcoholic, it would likely be cognitive behavioral therapy, a therapist, along with medication. Um, there are injections now. There is medication. It, You know, we're all different. Everybody's composite is different. That's why people respond to chemotherapy differently. People need different things and you need the right person. You have to partner with your therapist or with your internal medicine doctor. An internal medicine doctor that's good could handle this. But you don't want submissive. However, you would need a psychiatrist, not a psychologist to prescribe medication, but that doesn't mean you can't partner also with a therapist. Most of this is covered through insurance. You may have to wait to get that, but it is helpful. Um, You can start medication. And one of the most important things to break the cycle, because we're going to talk about those areas of the brain that are affected. You become, you've developed a habit. You've also developed a compulsion. You likely have impulsivity where you can't wait for it. Um and you need to break that cycle because you need to find something else to do. So it could be something simple. Um, I was with my kids that were making me really frustrated. I wanted to blow up. I was ready to like kill the two of them, but instead I took the dog and went for a long walk. Mm-hmm. By Brilliant. staying in that room, I was going to flip out. So I had to step out. When patients start screaming at me, I just say to them, I'm not listening to you because of the tone of your voice. You're yelling at me. I can't hear you, or I'll step away. If I stay in there, I'm staying in the cycle. I have to get out of it. Mm-hmm. You might go swimming. You might do yoga. You might put on music and go up to your room. You could go take a hot shower.
1: You could read a book, but you have to break the cycle. It well, goes it's for- also like you, you are in this fight or flight state when somebody's yelling, your kids are yelling, your patients, right? So you have to do something that lessens that, that state, right? Get into the rest and restore mode. As you stay in it,
2: it just yeah. accelerates and yeah. but also the circle, you're not going anywhere. It's any toxicity in your life, whether it be a marriage, a friend that's toxic, anything, your job, I'm not saying quit your job, but you know, step back for a second and the just boundaries. Say, this is crazy. Yeah. This- not normal, what's happening around me. But you need to step away from it, just like the addiction, and find a way to beat this. You will have a tough time. It is not going to be easy. That's why you have to surround yourself with sort of a battalion of things that can help you. And unfortunately, some people don't have a reliable spouse. You know, better to be alone than have a bad spouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not helpful. Not all kids are very helpful to their parents. You know, we ask them in the hospital, we say to them, well, all right, you have seven kids, but are they helpful? I just need one helpful child. You know, you get seven people that are all arguing with one another. That's useless. But um, or you could just have a neighbor that's so helpful; they're better than having seven kids. But mm-hmm. if there's nobody, then there's nobody. But then you'll have to draw the strength from yourself and also put yourself out there to find habits that can replace the bad habits that you've become addicted to. When I think
0: yeah. we just touched upon something huge, Dr. Erin and. It's the hardest first step. It's wanting to break the cycle, being aware that you're in this loop and it's going to, it's as horrible effects on your life and it could essentially kill you if you stay there. Taking that step out is very hard when you're in active addiction and then finding one person or hopefully a community to support you. Those are two necessary components. And then also, and I know we'll get into this, having that, I think to take that first step, you have to find that power within yourself. And that for me is my higher power because to take that first step out, when you're in this loop, like I know I was drink, okay, let me like detox to retox to let me get more in my system. And you're just spinning. It's an act of God to step out. It truly was miraculous. And, but you do need to step out and have support at like the same time so that you don't go back in
1: but I love this visual because I can see that loop. And I think we all have a different loop that was playing. I had a loop of going out, partying, drink, you know, going to the club. You had a different loop. You know, Mm -hmm. I know our members, we have a, um, a mastermind group and we have a beautiful group of women and they all run a different loop. And now I can see that. And only when we remove ourselves and you know, in the beginning, we say like the first three months, it's just going to be like, try to say no to social events, try to, you know, go inward, do that self love, like care for yourself, nutritionally, all of those things. Um, it makes a big difference, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is, I was going to get to this later, but let me mention something important. Um, a lot of research was done in rats with cocaine. Cocaine is very addictive. It drives a lot of Pulsive behavior, and compulsive behavior. They're all bad, but that one in particular has been studied in rats quite a bit because you get addicted to it fast. And what they found is they would give the rat a neutral stimulus, like a light, and then they would give it some cocaine. They did this over just probably a couple of days. And then when they flashed the light, because they were looking at their brain, they could see the same pleasure reward centers light up in the rat just with the neutral substance, much like Pavlov with the bell and the food. Then when they rang the bell, the dogs would salivate because they knew the food was coming, Mm -hmm. same. But it is proven on scanning of brains, what what can happen. So now when they do MRIs and PET scans to look at these pleasure centers lighting up in the brain, all they have to do is flash the imagery in front Mm -hmm. of them. Let's say your drinking buddy is, uh, or your dealer is out there. And you get something from them. All they have to do is flash their face, yeah. and that center will light up. That's why people say when you go into recovery, you have to change. What is it? People, places, and things. Yes,
1: them because those areas of the brain still yeah. light up. When you know these- what's wild? I went out last Friday for the first girls' night in since I was sober. So it's been it's been a really long time, and it was a Friday. And I'm going for my morning walk, doing the usual thing, and my brain, like I've, I've noticed this. Um, attention towards like I almost like felt like I was going out the way I used to go out and I was like getting excited and I was I was aware of what's happening in my brain and I was like well that's not what I'm doing today and so I had a completely different prep um, sort of like prepping for the thing I did like legs up the wall I meditated I, I worked out a little bit before put on music got dressed but you know, I almost had this like feeling of reward Mm -hmm. thinking about the nights that I used to go out versus like, just like a beautiful, simple, nourishing night out. It was a very different thing. And I had to like direct my mind to where I want to go and the person that I want to be. But it like, I, and this was like, you know, I'm sober 14 months and I can't imagine like if I didn't have the community that we have Mm -hmm. and, did constant research and work on, you know, our social media and just like being in that world. If I wasn't, I'd be like, you know what, F it. I might as well. There's um, nobody's holding, you know, holding me accountable. Um And so like that really helped me, but it was just so interesting because I had that, like this feeling of excitement for something that I'm not going to be doing. And then I had to Switch it. <laughs> switch-
2: Neurobiology, Michaela, it's those areas of the brain we just talked about in your neurotransmitters. Just thinking about it puts you into overdrive and you have sober time. So like we had talked about on earlier podcasts, people thought it was months, then they thought it was two years. Now the literature is shifting and the research is shifting to decades where you still, it may not be so primal that it, it comes up right away, but it's still there. Yeah. And you don't know when it'll pop up because you have no control over your neurotransmitters. Somebody will remind you of somebody, or you may go into uh, an emotional meltdown over something that can trigger all of those things again.
1: Or you, or you drive past the place that you used to go to and had so much fun, or you thought it was fun, right? You just, it's like that excitement comes up and you're, and you might be thinking like, oh, like I'm not exciting anymore, <laughs> right? Like that's just how our brain plays tricks on us. Absolutely. But we can, we can, instead of working against it, we can
2: find a way to work with it. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, all right. So um, we talked about the three stages, the cycle of addiction, like again, binge intoxication, withdrawal negative effect, and preoccupation anticipation. So these three stages are linked and they sort of feed off each other, but they involve different brain regions. So it's that behavior along with different brain regions that we've mentioned working, the circuits, the neurotransmitters, and it results in specific changes in the brain. Remember, as you are doing this over time, your brain changes. It doesn't mean it's unfixable, but your brain has changed. You have to accept that. You cannot fight it because I'm letting you know it happens. You can read it yourself, but it is a fact. So when people say to you, well, you'll be cured, there is no cure. It is a something you have to be cognizant of and be upfront with so that you can beat it every time it challenges you. That's why adolescents are so at risk because their brain is still developing. So Mm -hmm. their circuitry can develop incorrectly.
1: Yeah. So I have a question. So I heard something like, so I started drinking very early. I was about 14 and I remember being like blacked out drunk many times, like 14, 15, 16. And I heard somewhere that if you are blacking out at such a young age, you're most likely to black out, let's say in your twenties and thirties, like it's just a quicker response. Yes. Is that true?
2: That is true because the circuitry of your brain works quicker and it can basically go into a tailspin. So a person um, goes through like that that's your three stages that we just talked about. So when we're just talking about that, somebody can go through that over a course of weeks, a course of months, six months, or they can go through it several times a day, depending what they're drinking, their genetics, their environmental factors, it depends. But um, everyone's different. So there may be a variation in how people progress through the cycle and the intensity at how quick they go through each stage it's like heart failure. You start short of breath when you run a marathon, then you move up to when you go at a quick place, then you get short of breath when you're sitting, and then you're just short of breath all the time. It's progression, so it depends what you're doing. Mm. Um, But it does intensify over time, like we said, and it can lead to greater physical and psychological harm. So I just want to go over this next part I'm going to talk about is um, each of the stages, but I want to explain the behaviors that are central to the addiction cycle, which is impulsivity. Why, even though you've had three months sobriety, you're out for 10 minutes, walk by a liquor store, walk in and buy the alcohol. Why do you do that? Positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement and compulsivity. You have a compulsive need for this alcohol, this drug that you want, a cigarette. Um, So Initial substance use involves an element of impulsivity or acting without foresight or regard for consequences. You just do it. It's like, that's how children operate, but that is, you know, it's id. This is what we do, the id. So for example, an adolescent may impulsively take a first drink, smoke a cigarette, or try marijuana and succumb to peer pressure um, or try a party drug and they don't even know what it is. So if the experience is pleasurable, it is positively reinforced that behavior. Um, making the person more likely to use it again. Correct. Mm -hmm. Y'all have that. All right. Then another person may take a substance to relieve negative feelings, such as stress, anxiety, or depression. I've heard this a lot. People that with alcohol, especially they were a wallflower, so to speak, they were shy. They had that drink and they were the life of the party. That was me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, instead of a, so you could positive reinforcement, meaning that it gave you pleasure, but it was actually, it took away negative feelings. So it's considered a, a negative mm. reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So sense. this increases the likelihood that that person will use again, which often happens. So positive and negative reinforcement need not be driven solely by the effect of drugs. So there's a lot of other factors that can reinforce the behavior. So if the approval of peers or friends positively reinforces substance abuse for some people Um, if drinking or using drugs with others uh, relieves them from social isolation. This happened during COVID. Substance use behavior uh, could be negatively reinforced. Mm So we know now that impulsivity is an inability to resist urges, deficits in delaying gratification, and poor decision making. Like, well, sort of, well, let's not say poor. It's unreflective decision making. So you're not reflecting on what you're doing. You just do it like this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a tendency to act without foresight or regard for consequences and to prioritize immediate rewards over long term goals. We know this from Freud. It's often talked about. This is called the ID, and people are welcome to Google that. Um, Positive reinforcement again, presentation of a stimulus such as a drug increases the probability of a response like drug taking. Negative reinforcement, removal of a stimulus such as negative feelings or emotions, increases the response of drug taking. Whether the reinforcement is positive or negative, either one of those can lead to addiction. Now, for people that are in recovery, you will feel a need for compulsion, compulsivity, that is repetitive behavior in the face of adverse consequences and repetitive behaviors that are inappropriate to a particular situation people suffering from compulsions often recognize that the behaviors are harmful but they have they're emotionally compelled to perform them they can't help themselves mm-hmm. doing so decreases tension decreases stress or anxiety
1: mm-hmm.
2: When you are being driven to do something, it's like even when you're parenting a child, they're at you so much. You're finally like, fine, you've broken me down. You can have it, whatever it is, because you can't take it anymore. It's a terrible way to live. But um, hopefully the longer you're sober and maybe the two of you could speak to that, while you still have the compulsion, the impulsivity decreases and the compulsion decreases over time. Would you say that that's true?
1: Yes, as long as you're creating healthier habits hmm yeah and
2: with the healthier habits I would imagine I mean I have healthy habits too but um that gives you positive reinforcement so yeah. for instance I'm going to a book club tonight on art um and I'm really looking forward to it and it was funny because just walking by the book which I really liked I didn't love but it gave me such joy because I knew I was going to see the art again and I knew I was going to see the same people and that's a positive reinforcer for me mm-hmm. Cause I, I like to get dressed up and go. And it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: No, I love that. So I'm listening. That makes so much sense. Dr. Aaron. I, you know, I am, I joke about this all the time openly. I am a compulsive person like this. I like, I'm listening. I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. That. And when I first got out of rehab, my, I was, it was very hard for me just like my drinking to stop anything. Like once I was in it, I would drive myself into the ground and I would do this. Like I would exhaust myself physically, emotionally. I couldn't stop because once it took me and I was trying to relieve stress and that inner angst that alcohol used to, and I had to learn and root out and heal. And it was a process. I I think I drove myself into the ground quite often,
1: but I had with what kind of things
0: like, I just truly would not stop whatever I was doing. It was like you would think I, I you know, had I just nonstop. If it was cleaning, if it was, mm.
1: cleaning,
0: if it was, I need to learn about this right now. It's like I went down that rabbit hole and couldn't come out, and I didn't, and I didn't understand why people would. I'm like, well, it just I'm getting things done. It's not, and that's my part of my personality that's healing. But it's that. I mean, it is there. It is. It is in me. I, I I talk to it like it's something where I'm like oh there's that again well we're not going to do that today because that's not healthy like I can joke about it because I can see it but then when it comes up I'm like oh no we need to we need to step back here take a break this is not healthy it totally is my addiction just reminding me that I'm an alcoholic and I do have to keep be very aware of that because that's not ever leaving me
2: it's a sickness, a chronic sickness that needs medicine, treatment, no matter how you find it. Mm-hmm. A, a resource. We could talk about that at the end of the podcast. Maybe at the end we could just mention some things of things you can do. Yeah. But um you have to break that cycle, as we said. And that's that Erin. That so um basically positive and negative reinforcement can drive addiction initially and continually. It can continue. Impulsive behavior can become compulsive behavior. And the driver of repeated substance use shifts from positive reinforcement, which is to feel pleasure, to negative reinforcement, which is feeling relief. That yeah. is important. People who initially drink and drug want pleasure, but yeah. then they drink and drug for relief of the withdrawal, relief of the problem of the substance abuse. And as the person stops, it seeks to stop the negative feelings of physical illness that accompanies withdrawal, you'll see that. So the person begins to take the substance not to get high, but rather to escape the low feelings. So now you've really caught yourself into a cycle that's very hard to break. Uh, compulsive substance seeking is a key characteristic of addiction. It's just thinking about it all the time where did I put my drink last night? Will my spouse see it? Let me hide alcohol. Let me go to multiple trash cans and throw it out. I've heard it all. Mm. I've been handed in the hospital crack pipes by people all the time. And I don't even know what it is. So I would like take it and put it in my pocket and then take it out later. Like that's a crack pipe. Like, I don't even know because they'll just hand it over to the doctor. I wouldn't know either. That's crazy. So yeah, I just handed over to them, but I'm like, I don't even know what I just touched. Anyway, um, but it explains why it, the compulsion explains why so many people in addiction experience relapse after t- attempting to abstain or reduce use. You will get better. Just follow along and we're going to be okay. So let's go back to the area of the brains that are affected. And we're going to go back to this basal ganglia. This is BG, okay? Basal ganglia. Okay. So this is a binge intoxication stage of the addiction cycle is a stage at which someone consumes the substance of choice, heavily involves the basal ganglia. So when you take an addictive substance, you don't take it because it makes you feel bad, you take it because it makes you feel good. So these rewarding effects positively reinforce their use, um, and it increases a rewarding effect in that area of the brain and it activates dopamine. And we have our own opioid signaling system. This is not opioids exogenous, this is endogenous. They're inside of you. Mm So uh, many studies have shown that neurons that release dopamine are activated directly or indirectly by all addictive substances, but particularly cocaine, amphetamines, nicotine, and alcohol. Okay, so all comers, but those are the big four. Um, Once the reward system is activated by alcohol and drugs, you get the pleasurable feelings associated with the substances, but it triggers changes in the way a person responds to stimuli associated with those substances. So a person learns to associate the stimuli present while using a substance, including people, places, drug paraphernalia, and even internal states such as mood because of the reward effect. Over time, the stimuli can activate the dopamine system on their own, even without the substance. We just talked about that and trigger powerful urges to take the substance. So these sort of wanting urges sort of cause um, an incentive salience and they can persist even after the reward effects of the substance have diminished. So people can have a sense of euphoria even after they drank for a while or they've smoked marijuana or cocaine and they can kind of sit and just haven't had it. Okay, Um, so as a result, exposure to certain people, places or things associated with the substance use can serve as triggers or cues that promote substance seeking and taking, Mm -hmm. even with people who are in recovery. That's why people always say change people, places and things. So earlier studies in animals showed that giving the animal a stimulant drug, like I said before, the cocaine with the neutral stimulus does it with just seeing the light alone so just keep that aware so if you're a drinker and you go to a certain bar if you see someone you're somewhere else even in another city and someone's walking by with your drink of choice that could trigger it. I've read in books and I've met people they said, I absolutely beat all sorts of addictions, but then a glass of Chardonnay would go by on a summer day. And it was that moment, It did different restaurant, different everything, but just that, because they said, just to have that glass of Chardonnay, that cold glass in this particular day
1: of summer sets them off. And that's the part of the brain that you just spoke about. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question. we have a few girls in our mastermind um, super fresh and new and they're going to the wedding uh, for like the first time. like and this is something like you cannot avoid. like if you're in the wedding party, there's alcohol being served. So like, you know, we're providing a lot of, I think amazing advice and support and you know being able to check in with us. But what are some other, mindset shifts or tools that they can use before going to an event for the first time let's say somebody decides they want to be sober today like what are some things that they can do some things
2: they can do is disclose to somebody that they are concerned about their drinking they don't have to say they're an alcoholic or an addict say i just want to see if i can get through this event without drinking will you help me out it Perfect. could be your deal. it could be a boyfriend or girlfriend Sometimes people don't want to disclose to these people. They'd rather disclose to someone they barely know. That's okay, too. Just say, keep an eye on me, would you? I would skip the cocktail hour. I don't think that's helpful.
1: Yeah.
2: I would find someone to call during the um, festivities. And I would have a very large self-awareness of when you need to leave. So absolutely, you want to get dressed up. It's fun to get dressed up and go out. It's fun to celebrate. However, if it, co- if it causes you to relapse, it probably isn't even worth it. Rather than go to the wedding, take go away for the weekend, somewhere else for you. But if you think you can handle it, just be aware that you may have to leave. You know, you've shown mocktails on your podcast. There are other ways to drink. People do not have to be aware of what you do. I don't drink and um, I fortunately work in a field where a lot of people don't, so it's not an issue. But I have seen people, and my friends have told me about going out. I mean, if you don't drink, these people, and it's a very American thing, Europeans don't do this as much. Where if you're not drinking, people go absolutely crazy, like there's something wrong with you. So mm-hmm. if you're drinking and everyone's saying to you, why aren't you drinking? Come on, you could drink. That's insane. Like, that's yeah. ins- like saying to someone, wear this, do this. You're telling me what to do, and it's not a healthy thing. Just say you're driving, say you're on antibiotics, say you're pregnant, say I might be pregnant. Who cares what you say? Say I uh, I'm trying to lose weight and I've decided not to drink for a little while. So I just came here to watch it and I don't want to miss a thing. So I'm not drinking or I might have one later. I'll have some after at 10 and then just ignore that person because I'll probably be loaded by the end of the night anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I used to say I'm on a cleanse <laughs> all yeah. the time. Like oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna healthy cleanse. I cannot do that. Um, but one of the things I I recommended is to do like some breath work in the bathroom, like literally remove yourself from the situation, deep breaths, connect to yourself and get back out there, right? And have some fun, talk to other people.
0: Yeah. But I think something that Dr. Aaron said, and I do recommend this to my sponsees, do not go, and if if you're not in a place of somewhat neutrality with alcohol don't attend. You're not ready yet. You know, it's not worth it.
1: Right.
0: And if you feel like you have all your toolkit and you can employ all these great ideas, go for it and have fun. And I've had like conversations, people have called me during events. I've called my sponsor during events. You do need to stay connected, but you have to make a decision before you go. And if you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it, don't go just, you know, don't, it just, it's okay. But it's, and it's crazy about the people who care about you're not drinking.
1: It's a it's,
0: thing. I used to just pretend like I had a drink, and would just be, "Oh, I have a drink already," because I'm like, I don't, I can't. Just leave me alone. for a
1: I see it happen. It, it still happens to me, and it's he, wild.
2: You guys know saw that book, uh, "Why French Women Don't Get Fat." Uh, don't yeah. get. She wrote another book, "Work, Life, and Savoir Faire." I her name escapes me, so I apologize, but um, she she was the corporate officer of Veuve Cliquot Champagne. And um, she uh, talked about how she would go to meetings, especially with Americans, and they used to get really drunk and she didn't. And she said, because I would put the glass to my lips, if you're an addict, don't do this. But she said, and I just wouldn't swallow. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And listen, this, this really? was like usual back in the day of, uh, you know men would go to bars and say, put, this is the 80s, let's say put two shots in her drink and put none in mine and then they would get you know the girl drunk and have their way which is awful actually I just googled the lady her name is miriel Gallano. I don't want to not give her credit for the book so that was uh, why French women don't get fat and she wrote this other book uh, work love and savoir faire and how you have to be appropriate at work you can't get loaded but when you own a champagne company that's a little difficult so um, that's what she would do so you'll just have to find a way people shouldn't even be asking what you're drinking it's insanity well, the, the, most people who do that are not having a healthy
0: relationship with alcohol themselves. To put it in the most kindest way,
2: yeah. <laughs> for your listeners, for those in sobriety, listen: you're going to be held up as a specter to some of these people. You're a mirror, and you don't realize it. Yeah. You don't have struggling in addiction. People that have come into me, they're not homeless. You know, there are some homeless people off the street, but I've gotten many a corporate officer. I had someone who was one of the co-founders of the COVID vaccine. And he, uh, he was being called all around the world, New Zealand, Australia. They wanted him to come talk. He was such a bad alcoholic. Wow. I mean, no. You know, so who's to say? You just don't know who it is. You know, they say Park Avenue to the park bench. It's really true. They, they come in all sorts of shapes and colors. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so we still have two more parts of the brain to discuss. We have to get going. So okay. the basic... We talked about it. It's the reward system. So we're moving on now to the back to the amygdala. So the amygdala has to do with that part of the cycle that's withdrawal and negative uh, stage of addiction. Okay. So after you binge and intoxicate, then you, of course, after you binge, we all go through withdrawal. Everybody who drinks does. You might get a headache in the morning. If you're a chronic addict, you might get very, very sick. But it sets up future rounds of binge and intoxication. So during this stage, a person who's been using alcohol or drugs experiences withdrawal, which is negative emotions and symptoms, sometimes a physical illness. There can be vomiting. There could be diarrhea. You could get pancreatitis. You could go into uh, tremors, which could drive your drinking. People are always afraid of having seizures. Always, when you see any of this, go to the emergency room. Uh, when they stop taking the substance. So symptoms of withdrawal may occur with all addictive substances, including marijuana. There's a lot of cardiac effects coming out now with marijuana, Um, but they vary in intensity and duration depending on what the substance is and how often the person's using them. And of course, everyone's different. We've talked about that because of your genetics. So the negative feelings associated with withdrawal are thought to come from two sources. There's diminished activation in the reward circuitry the basal ganglia so we just talked about the basal ganglia that's reward that is stimulated right now it's diminished and negative uh reward and activation of the brain stress uh, systems so stress systems as a whole whether you are diagnosed with cancer whether you have a sick child whether you have sick parents you will release cortisol cortisol is a hormone that is directly related to stress it's in its extreme form hypercortisolism you can see people tend to look very round they gain weight it causes you to hold on to things but it's a stress hormone and it's you have to have it it maintains your blood pressure it has a reason for being there but when it's very affected it can cause the body to go very awry your blood pressure goes up your blood sugar goes up all these different things so um all substances of abuse cause dysfunction in the dopamine reward system and brain imaging has showed that. They show long lasting decreases in a certain dopamine receptor for just lay. if anyone wants to know, it's called D2 um, compared with a non-addicted individual. And it just means that um, natural reinforcers, this is actually important because I've heard a lot of people tell me this and I've heard this from friends who struggled with addiction. You know... I can't drink, I can't drug, but now I don't find joy in running. I used to enjoy running. When I have sex with my spouse, it's not as exciting you know, and this is when people start, they say in early addiction, a lot of people gain weight because instead of having a piece of cake, they'll eat the whole cake. Mm -hmm. But this has to do with that reward system because everything has sort of been numbed down over time. You need massive doses of it to try and get that dopamine effect again. And it's very, very hard to get, you know, I don't know much about crystal meth, I know about it medically and physiologically, but that drug really scares me because the way it tends to affect addicts is something like one hit of that, people chase that effect, that euphoric effect their whole life, and they will never find it in a natural environment, which is why so many people, you know, overdose and die. So it's just something to be aware of. So then when you like Michaela, Erin, we were talking about before yoga, meditation, joining groups, you know, a lot of people may not like AA or heard it's cultish or whatnot, but it wouldn't hurt to try it out for anyone who feels they're struggling with addiction. If you're shy and you're afraid to go there, you can always do Zoom, but I would encourage the person to speak on the Zoom. You're basically anonymous, it's just your name and uh, speak out and see. You know, that's a type of environment where someone walks in and says, Oh, wow, I had three drunk driving uh, citations. No one there is going to really criticize you for it. They're like, Oh, is that all you had? I mean, like they've heard it all. So Mm -hmm. it's a place where if you can't talk to your spouse and you can't talk to your friends and you're so, so embarrassed, which you should not be based on this talk today, that's a place as an outlet that you can just say these things. And sometimes just saying it, It is, makes it real, but it also allows you a release of, at least I'm in an environment where I'm not really being judged for this. You know, if you go out,
1: go ahead. Yeah. And also hearing other people's stories. It's so powerful of transformation of where where they were and what they've done, perhaps even worse than you. So it's like, it just gives you this, like a place of belonging. And then there is another way. Yes.
0: And Dr. Herndon, that will heal with time that dopamine response because as you're speaking I can think back to my early recovery and I had feelings of like I don't even enjoy this I don't even enjoy this I don't even enjoy this but I still did things to heal even though I was not getting the pleasure out of it and I had dark moments but it's because I had a relationship with a higher power it's truly by the grace of God that pulled me that I had hope now I wasn't feeling, I wasn't getting a response, but nothing like it's like things that used to lighten me up. I was like, well, I worked out nothing. Yeah. I nothing that, not, And I was like, but you know, it was God and hope. And, uh, and of course my children that I was like, but there's, there's hope there's hope in me. So for anyone listening and just nothing's lighting you up and you think, oh my God, I'm never going to enjoy anything again. I did heal, but it did take some time and I did have to do a lot of the work to actually physically heal my body so I guess you know it's like kind of like healing a car like um, repairing a car so it works properly so that everything was oh I like started lifting out of the darkness I'm like I feel that high from the workout I actually do enjoy that one cupcake like it was like little things was like oh this is nice but it just kind of like surprised me out of the blue it just started like like the lights came on again. Yeah. And I know we're
1: talking about medicine and, and, and that sort of level, but I feel like because of my spirituality, uh, which started at like 24 and I was like, sort of like living this double life in my twenties, having that connection in my thirties, I think is why I didn't deepen my addiction as I got older, because I had this foundation, like that spirituality was first. And then I learned about nutrition and the body and fitness. And I was still like, you know, trying to get that pleasure out of life and like because that's what I was used to. And then eventually that weeded out to, for me to get pleasure out of a yoga class on a Sunday, on a daily walk on, you know, really being present for my kid, like mm-hmm. all of those things. It just like you, you, it's going to be different for everybody, right? Like even Aaron's is different. Mine mine's is different. But I, like, I was thinking that the other day, if I didn't have the connection to my spiritual practice, and now it's like God and, and, and higher self, like, it would be very difficult to, to change.
0: Uh, for me, it'd be impossible.
1: Yeah.
2: I was reading in my book the other day, it said, a man filled life in a God made world. Um, do with it having a higher power is so important, or some type of spirituality, however, not everyone sadly does. Just for your listeners, no, and this is true in medicine, there's always hope. Two things that have stood me in time there is always hope. And I had an old program director, we'd have a bazillion things to do once we started at 7 a.m., and it, he just put up a sign that said, Start somewhere,
1: mm. and that's
2: for recovery, start somewhere. If it's not today, start tomorrow. You can break the cycle. When Mikaela and Erin were just alluding to healthy habits, you know, any habit, just not a bad habit. Um, you have to realign the circuitry of your brain, the dopamine receptors, the psychological impulsivity. You have to resist that, the compulsion. It will, it's like having a voice in your head. You need to be aware of it and say, go away. I'm not dealing with you today and go out. Like I said, the other day, I just went to walk my dog rather than explode in the house at my kids. You have to have that sort of self-control. There's hope, guys, and and you will be okay. but you have to absolutely have the willingness in order to do it. Um, And nobody can do it for you. It has to be you. Your kids can't want it for you. Money cannot be thrown at it to make it better. There is no vaccine. Your spouse can't want it. You've got to want it. You've got to want it more than anybody. And if you can have that, then you can get better. But just to allude to the the last part of the brain and and then we'll finish up. But we talked about the basal ganglia, which is the reward system. We talked about the amygdala, which is the withdrawal and the negative reinforcement system. The last one is the prefrontal cortex, which we said is right above your eyes. And that's the one that has um, executive, executive function. So, um, it's dealing with uh, your decision to drink or not to drink. So uh, it regulates your actions, emotions, and impulses. And executive function is essential for a person to make appropriate choices about whether or not to use a substance. So while we, there's an id, an ego, and a superego, this is almost like the superego, the parent of the brain, where it says, okay, you want this, my brain's firing away to give it to me, but now is this really a good decision? Most people don't make decisions, you know, you have to be really conscious of this. So whether or not to use that substance and to override strong urges, remember your urges are your id, that's what's driving you to want to use, Um, especially when you have triggers. That's what compounds it because it makes it so much worse. Mm -hmm. So being at a party where alcohol is served or where people are smoking, this can cause a lot of stress, release cortisol, you don't feel good, and you have to be cognizant of all these things, but any cycle can be broken.
1: Yeah. And, you know, something that came to me is like, let's say you're at a party, somebody's drinking and smoking. You might think like you're, it's like that FOMO fear of missing out. And is that what you're missing? Is that what's happening in the brain is because you're thinking about all of these rewards or this hit of dopamine that you potentially could get and you're not getting. So is that's what, what's happening when people have a fear of missing out?
2: It is a fear of missing out because remember when they have looked at addicts in those MRIs, flashes in these three areas of the brains light up and it is very hard to resist an impulse. That's why they're called impulses, but you have to, first off, you know, a lot of people won't admit they're an addict. I use, I still work, I'm a functional person, I'm this, but you've got to realize only For your listeners, only you really know what you're doing. So if you're on the podcast or you're concerned about addiction for you or someone else, you have to be really truthful to you um, about what you're doing and be ready to battle it and say to yourself, okay, well, all these areas I know now from listening to this podcast, your body is not necessarily working against you. It's been rewired by you Mm -hmm. to light up all these different areas. Now, just like you'd rewire a house, you have to find other things to do to take that away. And unfortunately, it's a lifelong battle. It can come back at any time, those urges. Maybe you didn't have an urge for 10 years, but now all of a sudden popped up again. Your friend's mother died. It reminds me when your mother died. Um, I went on a date when I was in seventh grade, and now all of a sudden that guy reminds me of that guy. You don't know. I don't know. It could be anything. Life is weird. So- <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Yesterday, I hadn't seen in uh, 30 years. I didn't expect to see him. I went into a deli and saw him, but it was weird. You know, it just was like, we all got older and I don't know how that happened. So mm-hmm. you expect to stay young. But um, yeah, so you don't know, where, you know, life is, uh, it's simple, but it's quite complicated at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're just true. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. Ooh, so much. I'm trying to process. I hope you guys wrote some notes to I think just even understanding what is happening, just having that awareness to when you do go to a party or you do go here, like you'll you'll start noticing these voices and these these different parts of your brain lighting up and what's actually happening. It wants to go back in that circle, that cycle of addiction. Right. Step
2: away from it, whether you create a boundary and say, no, I'm not drinking. Stop asking me. You don't have to be you know, mean, but go home, go out, find something else to do. Go shopping, go call, call someone, mm-hmm. um, anything you have to do to just give yourself a sense of control and not step back into that spin of addiction. Yeah.
0: yeah. And yeah. I think too, as you're speaking about this, you know, I'm thinking about me today, when I socialize, when I go out, I actually have real fun. And so for me, I, now I can just take a step back and look and say, what was I looking for inside that drink? What was I wanting? Because now I have that inside of me. And anytime I long for an escape, I just have to, I need to go deeper. I need to, you know, pray. I need to connect with my network but that solutions never found in alcohol and an alcohol actually isn't fun. It's just giving you a false sense of like relief or escapism for a moment, but it's not true joy. It's not going to give you that fulfillment. And I think, you know, especially for our children, we need to tell them that that's, you want more than what's in that bottle. You want more than what's in that drug and it's in you first. And even like today, and I say this, Michaela's heard me say this all the time. When I go out, I'm like, I won. I get to go out sober. It's way more fun. I love coming home and feeling great. I love having conversations. I remember, I invest in humans. I decide how much time I spend and who I'm spending it with, but it takes time. And I think Dr. Aaron, that it's so important to remind everyone to not re-engage in that cycle because then you have to do all the work over again. And I can say firsthand, it is awful. I mean, it was really hard. It's worth every second today, but when you're in it and you first step out, it's really hard. So don't torture yourself. You know, be aware and have those have those protectors up. Tell somebody when you're going out. Stay close to your sober network. Stay close to people who want this for you. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with another human. Stay close to your higher power. Um Anything else, guys, that you would recommend? And
1: redesign your day. Yeah, you know, how we start our day impacts the rest of our day. If you start your day, you know, with all of the things you have to do and scrolling on social media before you even got out of bed, that's going to trigger that anxiety inside of you, and you know the the fight or flight right inside of us. So, just you know, don't underestimate the simple. Things that we can do, like focusing on our breath, focusing on gratitude, looking around, feeling your body, like just being grateful for everything. Running, you had a great night's sleep, whatever. Visualize your perfect day. You know, if you're going to an event, one of the things I I, I mentioned in our group was, um, you know, rehearse mentally, rehearse going to a wedding, going to a party, and saying no thank you when you're going to be offered a drink because you will, Um, you know, mentally rehearse going to the bathroom, taking deep breaths, mentally rehearse, you know, perhaps like leaving home early and rehearsing, going to bed, you know, washing your face before and just feeling really good the next day. It will take you a couple minutes, but you're priming your brain. You're, and you know, I'm not a doctor, but like I can, I can almost visualize you like just building these new pathways in your brain where when you're at that event it's going to be a lot simpler you know it still might be hard and that's okay um so yeah i think just designing your day for success whatever you were doing before change it up you know try different classes try different routes of going home try um making different friends i think that's one of the biggest things it's just you know, as you get older, it's okay to create a different group of friends that are into different things, whether it's knitting or going to the library, like it can be this something outside of what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. and then you'll realize like going back to your regular daily life, like you'll just see like what gives you more joy, what gives you more purpose. And ultimately, I think that's what we're here for is to to grow and to evolve and to experience different things. And the only way to do that is through action. Mm-hmm.
0: I love it. You got to yeah. take action. You have to get deeply involved in your own recovery. Um, and for anybody, I always think it's so important too for anybody who is listening and feels like, okay, well, I'm stuck in this loop. This is me. What do I do? What are some, you know, first steps? You know, obviously, Dr. Ern, I know you recommend anybody who is in need of a detox. Um, go to the hospital. If they're having detox symptoms, head to the hospital, make sure you're seen by a doctor. Um, Of course, Mikhail and I are here to support you. We have um, our own amazing um, mastermind group for anybody looking to put down the drink and live everything that we just discussed. That's what we do in our community. And I always say anybody looking or curious about AA, you can personally reach out to me. So those are three steps
2: right there. Um, The most important one is to make a decision not to drink today. Don't drink today. And then make a little plan like Michaela and Erin were saying and try to stick to that plan. And if you falter and you struggle, listen, people that go to inpatient rehab, more than 60% fail quickly after coming out long-term. 94% 94% fail. This is a killing chronic disease. Only 6% make it. You're in the battle of your life, but you can win. So yeah. fight.
0: You can win and community. I feel like, you know, for me, community battle for your life, do it in community. Um, Dr. Erin, this was, I mean, I just learned so much. I always do. When you come on, thank you. I I can't wait for our next one. I have pages of notes here. (laughs) This is is, is incredible, but truly, thank you. We just, we love you. And we really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And um, Michaela, I mean, this is a lot to digest. This was incredible.
1: Yeah. And you guys, if you, if this episode resonated with you, share it, share it with your friends, your loved one share it on social media. You never know who you can be helping. You know, I think this is our mission and our goal in our life. And it feels so aligned. Um, like you never know who's watching, who's listening when you're ready, be fully in your power to say, let's say, you know, you don't drink or whatever. And when you're ready, like invite those conversations in as well. I think it's, it's, it's important to have this dialogue when you're ready with people um, just to show them that there is another way. Uh, I I know, I know a lot of you are doing this in the closet, you know, which is fine too, because it's, this is all about you, but um, you know, eventually becomes like, Oh, let's, let's help the world as well because this is such a massive problem in the world. And, and with all of the things anyway, Uh, We love you guys. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. subscribe on Spotify. If you listen there and share, 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 share. We love you and we'll see you or talk to you on the next episode. Bye guys. Thank you. Bye.